Get Back to Basics with Judaism 101 with Rabbi Michael Katz. Hi, and a very good afternoon to you, and welcome back. Yes, it is wonderful to get back to basics with Judaism 101.9 on uh, a day when uh, we are just at the beginning of the school calendar, of the school year, of the secular year, having just got into 2020, and believe it or not, I mean, it's quite unbelievable that we're already um, over a week into the new year, and um, on this day, of course, thinking about the fact that we are sort of already 150th of the year is already over, um, <coughs> 2020 is really flying by already, um, it is... Um, Appropriate and correct and right that once we've had a bit of a break and we've uh, been away, even if we haven't physically been away, we've been a little bit kind of at rest, um, hopefully for the last few days, and for the few weeks um, of this holiday period. And now um, getting our minds and our heads into how we're going to make this 2020, how we're going to make this year that is ahead of us, albeit the secular year, we're going to make it into something really, really special. And hopefully we'll be able to spend time um, on this program on Judaism 101.9, getting back to the basics, looking at Judaism for what it is, thinking about and trying to explain um, some of uh, the things that go on within Judaism, um, our calendar, um, the various Chagim, the various different dimensions to Judaism. Perhaps we'll delve into, as we've done in the past years, um, into some of our tefillot, into some of our prayers um, as well. But in general, just to sort of try in this time to keep us a little bit in touch and to perhaps refresh our memories of some of the stuff that we learned way back when um, and perhaps don't recall, perhaps weren't 100% sure of, and to try and give us that um, information that we have it at our fingertips and that we're a little bit more comfortable and a little bit more at home with our Yiddishkeit, with our Judaism, um, in uh, the way that we practice it and in the way that we live our special Jewish lives. So we're into the month not only of January, but we're into the month of Tevet, Tevis. This month, which is probably best known um, in the beginning of the month for the fact that it is the month that um, is uh, the first few days of the month are still the festival of Hanukkah. Hanukkah always goes for the first couple of days at least of Hanukkah. Sometimes it's two, sometimes, strangely enough, it's three because there is sometimes an extra day in the month of Kislev, um, which makes it, as it was this year, by the way, which makes it that Hanukkah ends on the second of Tavis, but certainly the first part is Hanukkah. And then we kind of launch into a bit of a down sort of a month from a historic spiritual point of view. But perhaps um, what I would like to try and demonstrate to you today or to talk about today is the fact that there is a kind of a down feeling of this month um, is not a reason for us to be down, but rather it is for us to try and spend our efforts and our energies on changing that negativity of turning it into something positive as um, Torah would want us to do. We speak about serving Hashem Basimcha, that God's 
service is to be done with joy, no matter what it is that we're doing. And it's to bring that joy, that happiness, that positive dispensation, that positive frame of mind to everything that we do. And in that way, we can change the negative into positive. We can turn the sad into the happy and we can turn the darkness into light. Well, the month of Tavis, interestingly enough, is the 10th month in the Jewish calendar. Um, yes, if we begin from Nisan and we go all through the months, we are already in month number 10. So just a couple more months and we'll be back at the, the doorstep of Pesach, at the doorstep of uh, the month of Nisan. I mean, if there's a kind of a scary thought, yeah, there's Tavis and then there's Shvat and Adar the last two months and then it's Nisan all over again and we're back headlong into uh, the year into Pesach and into all the wonderful things that it brings with it. So, um, yeah, have you bought your matzahs yet? No, only joking. Well, unless they shmura matzah where you would have had to order already, but um, we are really getting there um, at a rapid rate. But the month of Tavis this month is actually known in uh, Jewish thinking as being a kind of a down sort of a month because there were several calamities that occurred um, in this month. And in fact, there were instituted actually three different fast days, not all that well known, the first two, but the third one, of course, was a fast that we had just yesterday, the fast of Tavis, as it's known, or the fast of the 10th of the 10th. It is the 10th month, and it's the fast that happens on the 10th, and that um, fast of the 10th of the 10th is the fast that we commemorated just yesterday. It is known as Asara Betavit, Asara Betavis, the 10th of the month of Tavis, or the 10th of the 10th month. Now, there were two other fasts, in fact, that were commemorated or should have been commemorated on the 9th and the 8th. And in fact, we are told that due to the fact that we are kind of a little weaker uh, in uh, today's day and age, it would be impossible to ask people, <coughs> ask people, excuse me, to fast for three days in a row. And so the fast of the 8th and the 9th are known as fasts of the righteous. In other words, people who really, really are uh, of that level whereby they could fast um, um, on uh, uh, sequential days um, could and possibly do do those fasts, but we're called upon just to fast on Asarabatavis on the 10th, which was yesterday, to kind of incorporate all three of the dates, the 8th, the 9th, and the 10th. And we will get into a little bit more uh, detail um, in uh, the next part of this program of um, what the 8th and the 9th and the 10th of Tavis are really all about. And perhaps to begin with the most important, which is the 10th, yesterday. Why did we fast yesterday? What was that all about? Well, if we go back to the days of Nebuchadnezzar, of the king of Babylon, who was setting siege to Israel, it seems to have been kind of... A, um, a strange force that drove all the uh, leaders of uh, the world superpowers 
in days gone by to always want to conquer Israel, to always want to capture Jerusalem. Perhaps it was in order to show that they had more power over everything and even that they wanted to be more powerful than God to capture his holy city, to capture Yerushalayim. This was something that they all were hell-bent on doing. And Nebuchadnezzar, in the time of the Babylonians, so the first destruction of the temple, he began his siege of Jerusalem. So kind of think about the soldiers moving into place and the siege beginning um, around Jerusalem um, in the build-up to the eventual capture and destruction of uh, the temple, which took place, in fact, three years later. But it was on the, the 10th of Tavis that that siege began. Get back to basics with Judaism 101 with Rabbi Michael Katz. So, uh, wonderful ways to connect. Um, and how about making this a year in which we don't only connect um, through our apps, but we actually connect through our Judaism. And so let's get back to what Judaism is telling us about the days and the month and the time that we are actually in. Well, let's go back to what we were talking about just before the break, the three days on which there are meant to be fasts in this month of Tavis. And now generally, when people think fast day, they think sadness. From a Torah point of view, a fast day is really a time to introspect, to remember that there were calamitous things that happened. But ultimately, everything that happens in this world is to teach us something. Uh, we don't always get the lessons right. We don't always learn those lessons. And we don't always know exactly what it is that we are meant to be learning. But over a period of many, many centuries, we have been taught what some of these difficulties, what some of these calamities were there for, why they occurred, and what we're supposed to actually do about it. And so let's explore the three special dates, the 8th, the 9th, and the 10th of Tavis that we have just come through. And you may think, well, what are we going back for? Surely we should be looking forward. Well, actually, it's only once we look a little bit back that we can look forward. And it does have an impact on the rest of the month because, as I mentioned before, this is known as a difficult, as a tough, as a calamitous sort of a month, as a down sort of a month. And is it not our job to actually turn it all around? So let's take a look. What happened on the 8th of Tavis? Well, we're told that on the 8th of Tavis, 8th of Tavit marks the anniversary of an event that took place. It is mentioned um, in the Talmud, the, the event that took place in the time of a king called Talmai, or Ptolemy Philadelphus. He was... He was a Greek ruler, a Greek despot, a Greek emperor, and um, he set about a very, very interesting uh, um, project, and that was to have the Torah translated into Greek. Now, you may think, well, what a scholar, what a gentleman, what a, a wonderful man. Here he was thinking about taking the Torah and translating it. You know, there have been so many translations various different books of Torah, and the intention of translation is that people could learn it, that they could study better, that people who don't perhaps know the Hebrew or the Aramaic have the ability to study. So Ptolemy, this Greek emperor, set about translating the Torah into Greek. But the way that he did it spelt trouble, because what he did was he took 72 
great sages, 72 rabbis, and he placed them into a sort of a solitary confinement. He gave them quill and ink and paper parchment, and he told them, translate. Now, had his intentions obviously been pure, had he really wanted there to be a good, authentic translation of the Torah into Greek, it makes full sense that he would have set all these rabbis together and got them to hammer out a translation that they were all happy with. Um, and in that way, he would have had the most authentic and the most incredible um, literary work um, and knowledge uh, at the forefront. And he would have been able to then say that he had the first tra- authentic translation of the Torah into Greek. But that wasn't what he did. He separated everybody. He placed them all in solitary confinement. They weren't allowed to correspond with each other. They had no way of corresponding with each other. And he told them that they must translate. So clearly his intentions were negative. His intentions were to not only ridicule the Torah, but perhaps to kind of demonstrate how – in his mind, ridiculous it was that there could be so many interpretations that if you were to take, you know, we often say if you've got uh, two Jews or two rabbis, you hardly can get them to agree on just about anything. They'll have so you'll have three opinions. <clears throat> How much more so when we talk about rabbis with different opinions and different practices and different ways of emphasizing different stuff, that if you've got 72 of them um, translating, you're going to have, he was convinced, 72 totally different translations. You would have these um, different translations, completely different, completely different interpretations. And then he would be able to say, hey, look, the Jewish people follow this book. It's a law book. How can you follow a law book where the, the, the sages themselves don't agree on anything? Every different part of it, every single part of it is completely, completely differently interpreted and translated by each one of these different rabbis. It's a joke. That certainly seems to have been the uh, target of this Ptolemy Philadelphus, King Talmai, um, this Greek ruler. Well, <clears throat> as uh, fate would have it, as God would have it, the 72 rabbis sat and uh, under the threat probably of death, um, if they didn't do it, they sat and they translated the Torah into Greek, and each one of them emerged with his translation after a lengthy period of time, and it was, in fact, on the 8th of Tavis that they all completed their works. And you now had 72 translations. But then something phenomenal happened. <clears throat> that is, that when Ptolemy and his men came to compare the translations of the 72 rabbis, they found them to be identical. You had 72 word-perfect translations of the Torah that matched exactly. They were all exactly the same. And that was the 8th of Tavis. And so you're wondering, wow, what a great miracle happened. This is something that's absolutely incredible. Look at what happened and look at how God wrought an incredible miracle that 72 rabbis should have translated the Torah exactly the same way. 
and maybe you're not fully comprehending the miracle to it, but literally every word of Torah could be translated or interpreted slightly differently. There are so many different things and so many things that they had to take into account, so many things that they had to bear in mind. They had to be politically correct. They had to choose words that would couch certain things in a way whereby it would not anger the king. For instance, we're told Ptolemy's wife, um, had a name that was in Torah. Her name was Arnevet. Arnevet is translated in the Torah as a rabbit or a hare. It is one of the animals that we're told that we cannot eat because it um, uh, doesn't have a split hoof, um, albeit that it chews the cud, and it's called Arnevet. And the uh, sages, each one of them sitting in a solitary confinement, thought, you know, if I'm going to now translate that word and put it into the word of a rabbit or a hare, that's actually what I'm calling the queen, that to be politically correct. And they um, couched it in nice words. They spoke about the beauty of the animal, the creature. I'm not sure if any of them actually gave it a name, but in order to not bring disgrace um, upon uh, the queen and not bring disgrace upon, upon Ptolemy and also not to bring any disgrace or any backlash against the Jewish people, they made sure to translate politically correctly. But there was much more to it than that. <clears throat> if you think about the miracle of translation, now most of us probably know the first three words of the Torah, Bereshit bara Elohim. Bereshit bara Elohim means in the beginning, if we translate linearly, in other words, word for word, if we say Bereshit in the beginning, bara, he created, Elohim, God, we may have had a problem with such a translation. In the beginning, he created God. Who created God? Was God created? Why wasn't God first? Why doesn't it say that God created um, in the beginning? And we know that we have most of our translations today say in the beginning God created because we fully understand that in Hebrew the subject and the verb can sometimes be swapped around. Bara Elohim means God created rather than he created God. Yeah, God is not the uh, the object of the sentence, but rather the subject. He is the creator. Now, they needed to put that into a translation, and translation that can all be lost, and it could be confused. It could have been telling people um, worldwide and forevermore that now in a translation that God was created, God forbid, by somebody else, by something else, and they needed to put God first. They also didn't want to say, in the beginning God created, because that could have been interpreted by Ptolemy and his um, troublemaking, um, uh, mischief-seeking people to put it into a context whereby we would say that there was a beginning and then somebody called God came along and created the heavens and the earth. They didn't want that to be inferred either. And so each one of the rabbis went through this thought process and they began by saying, God created the beginning. They made sure that God was placed first so that in people's minds, God was first. In everybody's understanding, God was first. There was not a beginning and somebody called God just appeared on the scene and uh, created the heavens and the earth. Now, there were millions of different permutations of uh, the different ways that things could be interpreted or translated, to have them all come out word perfect, kind of uh, photocopies of each other, exact replicas, was a miracle beyond miracles. 
And yet, when our sages emerged from that translation on the 8th of Tavis, each of them agreed that this was a day of sadness. It was a day to be a fast day. And why? Because they said, we have now imprisoned the Torah. We have taken the Torah and we've locked it into one translation. We've locked it into one interpretation. There is no room now to have the beauty of Torah, which is to have 70 different opportunities and 70 different uh, translations, interpretations, um, a myriad of different uh, ways that we can explore and expound upon things in Torah. It was locked in. It was imprisoned. It was encaptured here in their translation which could have been a wonderful thing because it was opening it up to uh, so many other people to be able to read the word of God, to be able to read the the Bible, to be able to understand it in Greek and then any other language that was translated from there on into uh, other languages. Here they said, day of calamity. We've locked it into one interpretation. We have done something. We've been part of something. Ah, yes, we were forced. But we've been part of something here whereby the other 69, and it's kind of to the power of another 69 uh, permutations along the way, have um, possibly been lost to people who will not actually go back and study the Torah in its original, in its Hebrew, in God's language, and be able to get all that depth. We've now kind of simplified it. We've put it at a face value sort of interpretation of Torah, and they said, therefore, it needs to be a fast day. There was something else that happened, and that was on the next day, on the ninth of Tavis, two great leaders who led the Jewish people. Actually, on our return after the Babylonian exile, we were led by people called um, Ezra the scribe, Ezra and his partner, Nehemiah. Ezra and Nehemiah. They led uh, the Jewish people during the return from Babylonian captivity, so coming back now into Israel, rebuilding the nation. Uh, <clears throat> a later period, they unfortunately perished. They died on uh, this day, on the 9th of Tavis, was the Yorzite. And um, we're probably best known, we probably best know Ezra for the fact that he instituted the Torah reading in public, the fact that the Torah was read in public on Shabbat, on a Monday and a Thursday, that was an institution of Ezra and Nehemiah um, in that period of our return to Israel after the Babylonian exile. They died on this day, so the Yorzite, a day of sadness, a day of mourning, um, perhaps, for the Yorzite of Ezra and Nehemiah, um, which was kind of, they were the people who were bringing us out of Golis out of the diaspora and then they perished all too soon um, and left us with another <clears throat> day of sadness, a day of fasting, a day of mourning. Back with you right after this. Get back to basics with Judaism 101 with Rabbi Michael Katz. So we've got the 8th of Tavis being the day on which we mark the translation of the Torah into Greek. We've got the ninth of Tavis being the yard site of Ezra and Nehemiah. And we've got the tenth of Tavis being the day on which Nebuchadnezzar began the siege of Jerusalem. And three years later, Jerusalem lay in ruins um, and the temple destroyed on that fateful day in uh, Tisha B'Av, of Tisha B'Av, the first destruction of the first Beit HaMikdash. Now, if we take a look at each one of these days, they 
seem to have, or each one of these reasons for these days, they seem to have kind of a common factor. And the common factor is that each one of them has so much potential, it could have gone sort of either way. If we think about the translation of the Torah into Greek, the translation of the Torah into Greek could have been and has probably been heralded by most to be the most incredible event, something fantastic. Yes, Ptolemy's intentions were uh, he had ulterior motives, he had terrible motives, but ultimately the Torah was translated into Greek and from then on into many, many other languages. And we can think about the rise of many other religions, um, but the intrinsic belief in one God and a belief in the basic Bible um, that our sages actually translated into Greek, if we think about all of that, well, wasn't it a wonderful good turn that was done for the world? However, if we think about it on the other hand, on the other side, so many uh, calamities, so many difficulties have befallen the Jewish people because of mistranslations of the Torah. If we think about the um, whole um, rise of uh, sort of uh, Christian persecution of Jews over so many, many uh, centuries and uh, difficulties and difficult times, such as the period of the time, the Crusades, etc., a large part of their um, sort of sanctification of their crusade and a large part of them saying that uh, the Jews were um, the killers of uh, of Jesus and, and so on actually all uh, stems from or their belief in that individual actually stems from some very, very, we'd call them today dodgy translations um, that actually arose from further translations from the Greek into English or any other language where, in fact, um, for instance, where we talk about um, the Immaculate Conception uh, theory, um, it all arose from a translation. If we go back and we look in the original, we see that Torah says nothing of the sort, and yet basing themselves as they do upon those um, um, translations, it has ultimately caused us a tremendous amount of difficulty, a tremendous amount of pain and suffering. Um, and as we know throughout the centuries, I mean, persecution of Jews um, predominantly happened in the name of Christianity uh, rather than any other religion or any other reason uh, throughout the ages. And if we think about just this fundamental difficulty that arose actually from the 8th of Tavis, well, this kind of, in a way, is a source for all that material and all that doctrine uh, that was uh, built up to be thrust against us and to cost so many lives. So it could turn out good. It could have a positive effect. But by the same token, it could really turn out really, really badly. We think about Ezra and Nehemiah. We remember them for the wonderful things that they did for leading our people back after the Babylonian exile. We think about uh, the institution of public Torah readings as an example of something that was instituted by Ezra. Um, it is something powerful and beautiful. However, they didn't quite get to bring us to the redemption, to the gula, they didn't um, have the opportunity of um, of seeing all of that. So again, the ambivalence.
positive and negative uh, combined together. And we think about then the siege of Nebuchadnezzar of Jerusalem. Well, Nebuchadnezzar besieged Jerusalem, besieged Jerusalem for more than three years. Now we think about that, a three-year siege. What was happening during that time? Perhaps the Almighty was waiting for the Jewish people to do some repentance, to turn back to the ways that he had commanded them to do and to keep and to live by in Israel and around the world. And only when um, there was no movement, when the people unfortunately were bickering and quarreling and showing a lack of love for God and a lack of love for each other and a lack of observance of keeping to our Torah and our mitzvot, did God actually enable, allow Nebuchadnezzar to carry out his eventual siege and destruction of the temple of the Ir HaKodesh, of the Holy Land, of the Holy Temple and of the Holy Temple Mount. So it could also have gone either way. Back with you right after this. Get back to basics with Judaism 101 with Rabbi Michael Katz. So perhaps the trick to it all is to look at the reason why it is that we actually fast. Why do we fast on these calamitous days? Why do we fast at all? What's the concept of fasting in Judaism? Well, predominantly we're told that the idea of fasting is to enable us to re-evaluate our lives and to look at reasons for why calamities happened and thereby make a firm resolve, a firm resolution that we're going to make sure that those calamities could never recur, they could never happen again, that we're going to look at reasons and we're going to look at things that we ourselves may be doing wrong. In short, that we're going to bring ourselves to do tshuva, that we're going to repent, that we're going to mend our ways, that we're going to change our ways, that we're going to set out to do good things and to heal a fractured world and to make things a lot better than uh, they were in the past and that they were in these dark and difficult days. That's why we actually fast. Fasting is meant to be not an end in itself, but a means to an end. And if we think about these calamities, each one of them, as we have mentioned already, each one of them could have, in inverted commas, gone either way. We have the opportunity to change the difficulty into a positivity. We have the opportunity to turn the darkness into light. We have the opportunity to change it all. We could take now a firm resolution and say in honor of the 8th of Tavis, we are going to spend more time learning Torah. Ultimately, that is what we need to do. We need to study our Torah. We need to keep to its precepts. We need to understand more about it. We need to be more involved with it. We need to then reflect with Ezra and Nehemiah. Think about the uh, liturgy that they gave us. Think about the methodology that they gave us. And think about the thing that they desired more than anything else, which was the return of the Jewish people to where we should be as the light unto the nations, as the kingdom of priests, and to get our temple back and to do all of that stuff. And then, of course, the siege of um, Nebuchadnezzar and the eventual destruction of the temple was that as well. It was not only there to burn the house down. It was there rather to enable us to see the destructive things that we could engineer, that we could, God forbid, bring about through negative behavior and uh, the wonderful things that we can do through positive behavior. And so our job really is to take a look at calamities, at difficulties, at darkness, and see how we can fix it. Surely that is our role and that is our goal. And that ultimately is what Judaism 
commands us uh, to think and do and what it demands that we should have as our mindset. How are we going to change all of this stuff? How are we going to take the lessons from events, from calamities, from difficulties of the past, and how are we going to turn them into positives? Just to sit and bemoan them, just to fast, just to be sad, could never be an end in itself. That is not what we're about. We're not a sad people. We're not a mournful people. We're not a moaning people. We're not here to look for fault, but rather, how can we fix? What can we do to make the world better? What can we do to make our lives better and the lives of all of those around us? That needs to be our focus. And if we spend some time in this month of Tavis, at the beginning of this year, 2020, thinking about what I could do for others and what I could do, what we could do to rectify our own lives, the lives of our families, the lives of our friends, the lives of all of those around us. What a wonderful resolution that would be for the coming year. Hopefully we can do that, and hopefully we can make each month of this year more beautiful, more successful, more wonderful, greater and grander than we had ever imagined. Wish you a great rest of the week, a great Shabbat up ahead. I look forward to being back with you again. Same time, same place next week on Judaism 101.9.